This overcrowding and detention is becoming critical. It's a powder keg waiting to go off in an explosion of unacceptable behavior. Don't bitch to me, boss man. Thanks to the latest budget cuts, I'm down to using grade F meat. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was some sort of common solution to both our problems? That would be great. Hey, Bart, watch this. Oh, no! My favorite outfit! Jimbo, this is by far the worst... Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Jimbo, why don't you assist Lunch Lady Doris in the kitchen? Bite me, Skinner. Well, might we? It's hard for me to clean this giant pot when you keep spilling meat tenderizer all over me. Oh, great! Now I gotta work in the dark! Mmm! 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 This sandwich tastes so young and impudent. <laughs> Seymour, what's with the good grub? Mm. Well, perhaps I ought to let you folks in on a secret. You remember me telling Jimbo Jones that I'd make something of him one day? <gasps> Are you saying you killed Jimbo, processed his carcass, and served him for lunch? Ha! <laughs> hmm. I wonder where Jimbo is today. He should have beaten us up for our lunch money an hour ago. For lunch, lady? Please do have another sloppy Jimbo. That's a good night. No, that's your third helping, young man. It's making you fat and soft and tender. Mm. Uh, you just cut in line, didn't you? Reported attention, Ooter. For how long? Oh, about seven minutes a pound should do it. Some beef podcast. I'm your one of your hosts, Gary Hill. With me, as always, the man from the Kiss to Go podcast and other stuff, all other good stuff. Uh, Mr. Jeffrey X Martin, how you doing, sir? I am good, sir. I am your other host, and welcome to it. <laughs> how are you tonight, sir? Dude, I'm great. It's been a great day, so I'm ready to talk about some Heston. Beautiful. And uh, with us is the host with the mostest, the always impossibly funky, Mr. Mike White from the projection booth. How you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on, fellas. I appreciate it. Oh, glad to have you, sir. Uh, just in case the folks don't know, if uh, Rob didn't set it in pretty in stone pretty far, uh, tell the folks what you do. I'm one of the uh, two co-hosts over at the Projection Booth podcast. We do a weekly show talking about movies anywhere from the art house to the outhouse and every place in between. So we've been doing it for about, uh, I guess, a little over four years now and just uh, tearing up the charts, number one with the bullet. Sweet. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll ask this now. Um, I'll ask our guest first. Have you watched anything worthwhile lately? Uh, yeah. yeah. I've actually been a really good boy this year. A lot of times people ask me what I've watched lately, and I have no clue. But this is the first time where I have been writing down everything that I watch because I just want to see for shits and giggles what how many movies I see every year or what an average is. So, um, you know, of course, watching the movies that we have for this week. And then I realized that I watch a lot of stuff for the show. So I just watched Boxing Helena the other day. We're doing an episode on that later on in the year. Uh, one called Cleo Leo uh, that uh, Chuck Vincent directed, which was pretty terrific with uh, the always lovely Jane Hamilton in that. And uh, then one for myself, I watched Yankee Doodle Dandy that I taped off of uh, TCM. And that movie still gives me shivers today. <laughs> nice. It's on, it's on the shameless. I've never actually seen uh, Yankee. I've seen posters and, you know, the box on my grandmother's shelf. But I never actually sat and watched it. It was pretty funny. My wife walked in right towards the end. He gets this medal from FDR, uh, the character George M. Cohan, and he's walking down the steps of the White House, and he starts tap dancing, and my wife's like, did you see that? I was like, yeah, he's a <laughs> song and dance man in this episode, in this movie, and uh, she had never seen him dance before, seen a James Cagney dance, and he's a wonderful showman. Uh, great. Uh X, you watch anything good this week at all? Good lately? Uh, a couple of movies that really made a big impression, which I just found on Netflix. The first one is Proxy, which is a deeply disturbing film. And if you've not seen it, buckle in because it's over two hours long. But it's it's some fantastic storytelling. It's very deep, very layered, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I also finally watched The Canal because Duncan McLeish told me to, and that son of a bitch, I owe him, because that movie also is deeply disturbing to the point where I just wanted to throw up when it was over. Um, and that's a recommendation, just to be clear. So, yeah, definitely check out Proxy and The Canal. And beyond that, Netflix just got a big dump of like old Food Network shows, so I've been watching Cutthroat Kitchen. And I think when Alton Brown has the goatee, he looks more like the devil more and more every day. And I love that. Definitely. Me, <laughs> <laughs> uh, myself, my, my list is a lot more juvenile. I guess uh, over this this time, I, I watched uh, all the Fast and the Furious films except for the current one. But I watched them. I heard there was a correct order that they did. They didn't. They were the way they released them. It's not the order the films go in. So I watched them in the correct order. I guess you would call it. Where Tokyo Drift is last, and uh, it really worked because uh, supposedly there is this um, thing called Los Bandoleros. If you watch it, you watch the first one, you watch the second one, then you watch that, which is it's a short film made by Vin Diesel, and then you watch part four, then you go on to the end, and you watch part, you watch Tokyo Drift. It uh, it plays a, well, a way better than um they would together, and they're just films about fast cars and bullshit, you know, because the first one is essentially a, a remake to Point Break. Which is when they said that we're going to do a remake to Point Break. I was like, what the fuck's the point? We already had the Fast and the Furious. You know, that was Point Break with cars, not surfboards, you know. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, wait, it gets more juveniles as this goes down. Trust me, guys. I watched Problem Child 1 and 2 because I had them in HD. And they were still uh, pretty funny to this day. They still got some genuine laughs in them. Pretty stupid, but I got some good. I, I, uh, Gilbert Goff makes you laugh, and he's just, he's in those movies doing stuff. Hey, man, it's it's nuns in HD. There's nothing to complain about. <laughs> nuns in HD. Oh, this is just going down the voodoo list. I, I got a bunch of digital stuff. 
that's a love about voodoo. I get I get to watch critters in HD, and it's a wonderful thing seeing that the luscious hair of Johnny Steele just exploding out of your television set. Power of the night. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I just pulled that out of my subconscious, and that's really frightening for me. That's okay. I didn't, I'm fine with that. Uh, I watched Game Over, the the documentary on Netflix about basically the death of Atari. <laughs> Dude, I watched that too. I watched that too. That's really good. Uh, it's interesting, you know. They literally, they literally buried a legacy. <laughs> yeah. I would rather see Zach Penn doing weird little movies like this and like Incident at Loch Ness than I would have him writing fucking Marvel movies because he's really got a good eye. He's got an interesting vision. I like his stuff. Uh, there's there's other stuff too that I won't get into, but uh, I still see those were the highlights of my week. You know, besides the fact that I watched Parenthood, not the TV show, but the movie, and it still makes me laugh to this day. Uh, but does not make you cry? No, no not terribly. No? Because I'm a heartless bastard, you know? <laughs> oh. You just like to see Steve Martin dressed up as a cowboy. It is entertaining, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that they, they, they make fun of the whole shooting shit, which wouldn't play today at all. His, his fantasy about his son shooting up a school because his dad didn't play second base, you know, and... uh. Uh, you can't do that anymore. You cannot <laughs> have that anymore, no. Especially play for laughs, because he's, he's all, you know, doing that, that diarrhea song while his son's killing people. And, you know, that's... <laughs> no. <laughs> God damn it. I gotta mute. Ploppies and mass shootings do not, do not mix, is all I'm saying, man. <laughs> Are you okay, X? <laughs> I'm fine. Go on. Let's let me catch my breath. Uh, yeah. Besides that, there, there's other random stuff. Uh, I'll let that go on my beef of the week. I have two beefs actually, so we'll move right into that right now with our beefs of the week. I'll start with you, X. Uh, you got any beefs of the week, sir? I have... It's kind of a half beef. Okay. I understand they're moving Suspiria into a television series. Now, this bothers me because I don't think that it lends itself well to a television format, but what they're planning is to have a series centering around the author of the book, Profundus de Suspiri, who is Thomas De Quincey, and he's a real life guy. Um, so it's going to focus on him, like, you know, doing paranormal shit back in the 1600s or whatever. And that's cool. But my whole thing is if they don't hit the three mothers mythology in that series, it's going to be a waste of time and it may as well be Da Vinci's demons. So it's a beef because I'm worried about how they're going to approach it. But at the same time, if they do it right, I will watch the shit out of it. I have no opinion because I'm not the biggest uh, Italian horror fan like he, some folks are. But uh, Mike, give an opinion. What is wrong with you? I'm stuck. I didn't watch a lot of them, so you know that's just that's just me, I guess. <laughs> I was in a main. I was a mainstream kid who rented the same movies all the time. So <laughs> I saw Creepers before I saw Phenomena. I can't help these things. <laughs> Fair enough. Mike, what's your opinion on this, sir? Of Suspiria as a TV show? Yeah. 
I don't know. I, it seems, uh, you know, I keep hearing TV is the way to explore these longer storylines, that kind of stuff. And I can appreciate that. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, how much story is there? And will they just kind of turn it into like, you know, uh, what is that show on the CW, Young Vampires in Love or whatever it is? So. Yeah, I don't know how. Uh, That's exactly like what it is, Mike. Witch Academy. Yeah. Yeah. So. I yeah. Zombie Diaries. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Although I heard that I Zombie show isn't that bad for a couple people, so you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I've heard as well, but I, I thought that it was actually a new um, Macintosh product. I didn't know that it was an actual TV show. Because <laughs> it sounds like that. Thank it's you. the watch. The watch yeah. has prongs in it that inject you with the virus. It's like Kronos. Jesus. <laughs> um, I guess I'm moving on to you, Mike. Do you have any beeps of the week, sir? The uh, stuff that's bothering you in the, the world of entertainment or elsewhere? <sighs> I'm getting so sick of this whole idea of teasers for previews. Like we had that weird thing last week of the Batman teaser where they showed just like the outfits. And then a few days later, the trailer leaked and then the real trailer came out because Warner brothers had to then release it. But it's like WTF. Why do we keep having these like teasers for trailers? It's just like, just it, that has really been bothering me lately as far as just the way that we're hyping everything up so much that we have to have a, a teaser for the trailer. You know, it, it like it, just get over yourselves, guys. Just release a freaking trailer and be done with it. You see, I have that opinion on some things, not 99.5% of things, but there is that thing where you strike where the iron's hot. I'm talking to you, Phantasm 5, where I saw a poster, and then two <laughs> days later, my nipples got about 10 feet out when that preview came out. I'm like, okay, I'm all in now. You know, it's, it's, it's. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I get what you're saying about that. They're just trying to capitalize on stuff. They can say, oh, the trailer leaked. Sure, it did. He just, right. put, he just put it out there. You know, it's, it's. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I still don't understand that whole thing, too, where it, sorry, this is a second beef. The whole idea of trailers just being exclusive to movie theaters now and then, you know, like this whole like leaking of the trailer and all this stuff. It's just like just put it out online. You know, that was the smartest thing that they did. Well, putting the Star Wars trailer out online at the same time that they're showing it in California or whatever. It's just like just put it out there because otherwise you're going to get that shaky you know, like um, somebody recording it in a theater kind of thing. If you're going to promote your movie, just promote your movie. Yeah, it works better that way. More more word of buzz, you know, especially with the social media now. Just uh, throwing it, sharing it, whatever. Right. I just shared Ross Patterson's uh, Helen Keller versus Nightwolves trailer and Indiegogo campaign, which I'm very excited for. I'm going to pay into that because I'm, yes. I'm a big fan of uh, Ross Patterson and everything he does, so... If you've seen FDR, American Badass, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, FDR, Pool Boy. It's so good. So, yeah, go donate to Ross Patterson's cause, people. You might enjoy that, that stuff he, he puts out for you guys. Uh, I've, I've met Barry Bosick. He's still the man, so that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, as far as my beefs go for this week, my beefs is a, is a television beef as well. I'll entitle this one, Wes Craven, Just Stop. Okay, because apparently along with the Scream television series, we're going to get people under the stairs television series as well, which could either go the Bates Motel route or, 
what were the, the, the Mr. and Mrs. or whatever their brother, sister or fuck buddies or whatever they had going on in that movie like, I guess, before all this happened, picking up all their children and such. Or it could be what I would want. What happens when these mutants go out into the populated world? What are they going to do then? I would love to see that show, but I'm not going to see that show. You're going to see that pan pandering to the fans prequel BS, and I'm sure this is where they're going to go with this, you know, and I'm not looking forward to that or the Scream series, which the character descriptions alone they released a long time ago. It just, it, it broke my heart. <laughs> these are characters I have no interest in knowing or caring about, you know, and, uh, this throwback stuff, this throwback to the 90s stuff that you should watch it. You should make the distinction. It's just still relevant. The movie, well, the first Scream is still relevant, I think, in a way. I'm not saying revive the slasher genre. I think it brought a whole lot of bullshit after it. So in that way, I hate Scream because it gave me, I still, I know what you did last summer and Valentine and stupid stuff like that. Aw, don't be hating Valentine. I'll hate Valentine. Uh, <laughs> I'll hate Valentine as much as I want to, okay? Just, right. just, I, I hold grudges, man. I never watched an episode of Bones. You want to know why? Because Boreanaz didn't finish <laughs> Angel. That's why I didn't watch an episode of Bones. <laughs> Damn, son. I hold grudges, man. That's, that, that's, that's a grudge. Yeesh. And the one opportunity they got to meet Joss Whedon... I had the opportunity to say, so what happened with the end of the angel thing? And he got upset about it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, the one opportunity you get to meet supposedly the man who made those those kind of movies, you know, who made lackluster space pirate TV shows. And I'm not the biggest Avengers fan. But I'm looking forward to that second one more than the first one, obviously. And uh, that movie is about 70% puff. And then the last 45 minutes is spectacular. I'm not a huge Whedon fan. I didn't like the Avengers, but I'll say this, son. You can't take this guy from me. <laughs> Adam Baldwin will always be that guy from DC <laughs> Cab to me in my bodyguard, okay? He will always be my bodyguard. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> He'll always be that guy. I, 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 can't, I can't get behind Firefly, man. You can just, ugh. If they had had Chris make peace in one episode of Firefly, it would have made everything okay. Probably. <laughs> it might have revived the series, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. It's, it's something I watch, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. For some, I'll talk about it anyway. For some reason, I had seen it laying around the house. I decided to put Kick It Old School in my DVD player and watch it. And that goes back to that whole throwback 80s thing. For them to title this, Jamie Kennedy, Please Stop. Because, you know, yeah, I think I got it for like uh, a dollar. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to the Scream thing, too, see? <laughs> No, I'm just going to leave it. I think I just got an anal fissure from you talking about that. I'm going to leave that there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Jamie Kennedy. I did like that heckler thing you made, though. I don't know what that's about, but that was interesting. Basically, the whole why you hating, but for some reason, I enjoy Malibu's Most Wanted. (laughs) That movie got really weird. Not Malibu's, but Heckler. Because it started off as one documentary, and I was enjoying that, and then it turned into... Why are you guys picking on me for doing shitty movies? I'm going to try to make you feel bad about it. Mm, no. He made bad movies. And just like, you know, Vanilla Ice made bad movies. Well, I can't say Cool as Ice is a bad movie because for no, some reason. I God, no. Yeah. See? Don't don't you dare say anything bad about that This movie. guy. This guy knows what I'm talking about. See? 
That's right. <laughs> yep, yep. Gil Rockadansky is a big fan of that movie as well. I think he watched it like seven times since he's had it. I don't know how many miles I had to drive to see that movie because it was only playing one theater in Detroit. Dude, it's Teletubbies with breakdancing. <laughs> and it's the, absurd as shit. What's the matter with that? Yeah. Well, I'm not, nothing because I'm a huge fan of absurdist cinema, but I didn't expect it from, you know, cool as ice. Yeah. It's it's Per Ubu, but updated to the nineties. <laughs> Oh, you kill! We're killing them! We're killing them tonight, people! We're killing them! You know. <laughs> oh my God! But uh, yeah, that's the guy that birthed Ninja Raptor, and I gotta respect him for that. You know, I think that was the first VHS I ever owned. Was that Turtles Two movie? So you know, that was a big deal. So <laughs> I just owned the the actual standalone making of the Ninja Turtle rap music video slash you know performance. There, <laughs> it was it was a special tape that i got at uh, suncoast video for like 2.99 wow yeah, that's mm-hmm. taking it back that's a, a suncoast video thing <laughs> <laughs> oh man Dad, i'm not gonna get into that though but uh, we are gonna get into some cool stuff tonight though um we're gonna talk all about heston like um x said for three films uh known as heston's ascots where his x titled this show because <laughs> of his attractive neck gear throughout these three films I asked tell the folks which ones we're doing that I've done. We are doing Planet of the Apes, the Omega Man, and um, shit, that one I just forgot. Soylent Green. Oh, Soylent Green, of course. Soylent Green. Yes, we are doing those three. And the disparity in neckwear is apparent in all three. <laughs> and we'll get into that. Um, we'll get into Planet of the Apes first, I guess, chronologically, like, like you guys say, and uh, right after the trailer. Discover Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Today for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. And a kind of living death.
Yeah, the drums, man. Need some pan drums in that bitch. Not a good soundtrack to drive to, unless you want to really get on edge. That shit will fuck you up, man. Planet of the Apes from 1968. Plot synopsis is this. An astronaut's crew lands on a planet in the distant future where intelligent talking apes are the dominant species and humans are the oppressed and enslaved. Uh, this, of course, starts great Chuck Heston, uh, Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter, doo, Maurice Evans as the Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I, I, can't, I can't say the man's name without saying Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I like do it, too. I do it, too. <laughs> Linda Harrison is uh, the very mutant Nova. Everybody, everybody Thank had, God! Wish everybody had a girl like that, see? <laughs> and there's other folks in the movie, too. I'm sure you guys uh, will mention to me that I have no idea who the hell they are, so... We'll start with our guest first. Uh, Mike, what's your thoughts and uh, ramblings on Planet of the Apes so far? Oh, Jesus Christ. Planet of the Apes is one of my all-time favorite films. And back in Detroit, um, I don't know if they did this where you guys grew up, but they would have the 4 o'clock movie. And with the five Planet of the Apes films, every day at 4 o'clock, they would show a different Planet of the Apes movie. And, yeah, the Mole Men are cool and everything in number two. And, uh, well, actually, it's Mole Men in, what, five, but it's kind of the underground layer in, in number two. But I got to go with uh, one, three, and four when it comes to the best Planet of the Apes films. And, of course, number one being the best. So I'm I'm really um, a big Apes fan i've read the book i've read the screenplays you know i've studied the history all that kind of stuff so i don't know even where to begin when it comes to this movie because it is just i won't say it's a flawless film but i will definitely say it it holds up over time and uh, we were talking a little bit about the score before we recorded uh the jerry goldsmith score this kind of i don't know bella bartok type um you know uh, atonal score that's there just incredible just fits so well and you know it kicked off a series that's still happening today and I, I prefer the old ones to the new ones but uh, uh, for God's sakes it's so much better than that piece of shit that Tim Burton directed <laughs> agreed on this and I'm sure agreed uh, with X I'm sure as well well I and here's a stark confession. Planet of the Apes is the only one of the Ape series that I've seen. And I suddenly feel vastly undergirded. I feel I feel, I feel very small. Um, but I will say this, and I've probably beaten you both on this one. I got to see Planet of the Apes on the big screen. Wow, nice. Um, when I was a kid, there was this country music station that would sponsor like old movies to come back to the big screen for like a matinee showing. And my dad in 1975 took me to see planet of the apes on the big screen. And I fucking loved it then. I thought it was amazing. So <clears throat> it's an undeniable classic. It, it, it hits so many things. I mean, it's a, it's a fish out of water story it dives really deeply into issues of power and control and how stories control what we believe, um, you know, science versus faith. So you really can't say a whole lot of bad things about Planet of the Apes because it resonates on so many levels. But I I don't know. I've got a couple of issues with it. Do I want to go into this now or wait, Gary? Thank you, man. Listen. Okay. Here's my problem. <clears throat> Rod Sterling wrote the screenplay. And nobody's going to like come at me and say Rod Sterling was not a fucking genius because he absolutely was. 
I mean, his work and the impact that he made on both the horror and the sci-fi genres with the Twilight Zone, even if he didn't write all the scripts, he gets the credit for that. But for all his genius, he was a little preachy. Um, and I think that's what makes the John Landis segment of the Twilight Zone movie so effective is because it seems like something that Sterling would have written himself. So if there's anything for me that betrays Planet of the Apes, it's a serious lack of subtlety. Um, that oh. and the fact that Charlton Heston was smoking a cigar on a spaceship. I don't think you can do that. <laughs> that seems like a very bad idea. I also didn't like that he named the girl Nova because that seems like too spacey for such a dirty kind of earthy film and uh, not to mention she's terrible. Um, but you know, but she doesn't have to do much, so that's okay. So yeah, I think, I think there are problems with the film. I think it's very ham fisted. It's really heavy handed, but beyond that, it hits so many themes that are central to being alive and being part of mankind as a whole, that there's no way you could, there's no way you can hate even the, you know, sheer iron fist of it. It's just, it's a great movie. And it's, 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 I challenge people to say, Oh no, that sucks. Yeah. I, I can't imagine seeing this thing in the movie theater the first time, you know? Oh my God, dude. Let's see. 75. I was seven. Like I was seven years old. (laughs) When those apes show up and they start hunting the humans. I mean, that is a huge reveal. And I yeah. love that. Oh, man. And then, of course, you know, the twists that happened during the movie and the, the twist at the end and everything just must have knocked you on your ass. I mean, especially the twist at the end for everyone seeing that first run, second run, that kind of stuff before it became part of our pop culture. I mean, even now when you watch that, it still gets you. Like, yeah, yeah Heston is a broad, broad actor, and he gives a huge <laughs> performance, especially in that end scene. But it works, man. It works. Just the speaking of the music, the lack of music in that, and just the sound of the ocean and the him. Ocean oh, so good. See, and the reason it works, though, is not because of Heston. It's because of how Franklin Schaffner chose to direct those scenes. Mm. Because when you see them, when you see um, Taylor and Nova far off on the beach and in the foreground, there's this thing that you almost recognize, but you can't quite place it. And there's that scene in between the spikes of the Statue of Liberty's crown where he's way off to the right in between those spikes. Statue of Liberty? Wait yeah. a minute. It's not, that was our planet. It's God damn it! Yeah, it's just like all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, I get it. And when you actually see the Statue of Liberty and one of the spikes is bent down, mm-hmm. it's such a crazy hit right to the heart. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, they really fucked this up. And they just leave it there. They just leave it. They don't go into any explanation. Just, oh, we blew it up. Shit. Not time for another adventure. Not, you know, there's no way that Taylor is going to save the day on this thing. That's it, man. He is just defeated. And that's one of the things that, well, we'll get into a lot with these three films is just how defeated Charlton Heston is with all of these stories. (laughs) Agreed. Uh. 
Yeah, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, uh, Serling being preachy. I mean, this is this is post-Twilight Zone. I think either he wrote this after the show was over, or, but it was definitely made oh, post-Twilight Jesus, he Zone. wrote so many revisions of the script. Oh, my God. You go back and look at all the different endings he had. Yeah. Just insane. And uh, the whole show was preachy, though, because him being in the Air Force himself, I'm sure he definitely has his reservations about the American military. And there was an episode, I think, that really fits well, you know, with the ending of this film. I think it was called I Shot an Arrow in the Air or something like that, about a test pilot who shot up in this test, this this plane and came back down, didn't know where he was. It turned out he was still on Earth the whole time. And, you know, I, I it, it kind of fits, you know, with the whole, not the, necessarily the whole space-time continuum thing, you know, but the idea that he's still, he like, almost like they went straight up and he came back down again. Like, he was still on Earth the whole time and... The fact that it was in the Forbidden Zone, the apes had no idea this was over here, and, you know, that was something to me, too. But uh, the apes, first apes film, is uh, definitely the most uh, powerful, I guess, of the apes films there is. If you want to talk about preaching, talk about that second film. You haven't seen that yet, though, X, but uh, a a bomb comes into play. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Yeah, Yeah, I've got it. I just haven't had time to watch it. So I'll get through the whole fucking heptology or however many there are now there's like what 10 if we count burton uh yeah i, I well i think there's uh eight all together plus, plus the tv yeah. show plus the cartoon yeah tv plus show. the lunchbox I, I had i would honestly skip two and just go to three and four and the ending of four to me is one of the most powerful things especially the original ending where basically you know the there's so much racial stuff in the original Planet of the Apes, and they just carry that through, especially in 4. It is basically like a like black power movement kind of thing where uh, Caesar, Cornelius' son, is calling for armed rebellion, and it is just amazing. It just will take the wind right out of your sails. See, I can't... See now, I can't not watch all of them. The, I got to work my way up. I'm a completist. In the well, two, two, you you got to suffer through two. Two is gonna is, is gonna <laughs> hurt. James Franciscus. Franciscus. He's no Charlton Heston, man. <laughs> and, and you know Don. Uh, oh God, what's that guy's name from uh, Baron Zamundi from uh, um, Don Pedro Colli. He's in it as well. And Victor Buono. There's some good actors in it, but it's just, yeah, it, it's not that good of a film. It does drag quite a bit. Yeah. yeah you mentioned the whole Black Power movement, you know, Austin Austin Stoker with his massive oh, afro. Yeah. Majestic afro uh, doesn't help, you know, not talk about a Black Power movement, you know. Did you just say the magic words, Austin Stoker? I told you. I mentioned this during the, the True Grit slash, you know, the, the Assault of Precinct 13 one. You know, the only reason I recognized who he was, I was like, that's the emissary to the apes. You know, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Now I must watch it immediately. That's why I recognized who he was, because he was in that movie. <laughs> like, okay. It's a. Uh... Yeah, that, made, that, that, that first ape film, Heston's in full effect, you know. I love, yeah. I love the fact that when they wake up out of their sleep, they're, 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 they're a fuck buddy that they're going to repopulate the earth with is gone. And they're just a bunch of bearded dudes, like 70s style almost, you know? <laughs> you cut into his braid. Oh, so yeah, good. it's like a raft full of Jeremiah Johnsons. <laughs> it's like, show us to the set. <laughs> I was waiting for the, like, that kind of music. But we yell, yell on drums in this movie, which it, we mentioned the Gold Slips, Miss Scored, and 
<laughs> Mike mentioned during her, before we started this, like, don't listen to it while you're in your car. You know, <laughs> it'll fuck you up. <laughs> Guaranteed road rage, man. Now let me say this because you know I'm I'm I've got this weird fetish about Charlton Heston's neckwear, so. We've got two separate rating systems going here. It'll be the regular rating system we use on Cinema Beef and my ratings of what he has around his neck. So, in this movie, Heston's neck wears a leather collar, which he gets placed on him when he's captured by the apes. And it's got this cool-ass bar that goes down his spine that they tie his wrists to. So, it's very BDSM, and just for that, it gets a solid four. <laughs> yeah. It's very Randy Gray, and I kind of oh, dig it. To, to go on and say, I got to mention that, you know, his, his very first neckwear in the film was that bandage. Because the scene. Oh, he, Jesus. When he, gets, yes. he gets shot in the throat, he which which, which should have killed yeah. a man. You know, but he, he lives. Not Chuck. Not Chuck, no. Not Charles Neston. Moses can still speak after a while. Oh, yeah, that action and the action. Yeah, you know, him basically mimicking like, what they called mimicking to to Doctor Zayas, you know, and that that deal and Zero just looking like a fucking idiot to everybody and and, and the whole thing. I, I love the 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 Flintstones village set design of the film for some reason. I thought about the Flintstones. I can totally see that. <laughs> just a lot of cave and rock formations, you know. I kept looking for the loyal owner of the water buffalo, just just hanging around there somewhere. He'd been uh. It's a living. Wah, wah, wah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I like to see the apes smoking cigars because at no point do we see them harvest tobacco and hand roll them on their laps. So that was intriguing to me. Oh, I love the scene. Like you guys mentioned the, the, the first reveal of the apes and they, they show the apes celebrating, I guess, on their 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 hall of, of dead humans because they're hanging upside down like like pigs in a, in a slaughterhouse. Do, do do they eat the yeah. humans or what what is going on with these humans? You know, just when they're getting they're getting their picture taken at one point, right? Yeah. And just all kind of yeah. smiling and stuff. It's weird what technology is there and what technology isn't there. And I know that in you know, in recent years before they made the Burton one, there were three or four different uh attempts at redoing the ape stuff and everybody had their own take as far as like, well, it'll they'll have automobiles and boats and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, it kinda works better when it's like nascent technology but you know yeah. some of the technology yeah. doesn't necessarily jive with other stuff so i mean i guess you know we're still riding on horses and stuff when matthew brady's out taking photographs well, well they have cigars and they have p cameras but they don't understand talking dolls right well the the, uh, the talking doll thing was a revelation to dr zayas which you know of course he he tossed away the doll at the end when yeah. good old taylor tells him you know if humans were here first, why would why would they give a, a doll uh, a, a doll a, 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 a Why would an ape make a talking doll? Yeah, but see, Doctor Gaius is the thing that makes this movie timeless. It's because you still see those kinds of views coming out of his ape mouth that we hear today every day on the internet. The politicians are still spouting just crazy. What are you talking about? Global warming, climate yeah, exactly. change. It's been super cold lately. It's not yes. global warming. <laughs> Take him away. 
it's, it's, it, 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 there, his his version of ape law and like where this came from reminds me of Gerald George Carlin's shtick about where the Ten Commandments came from. Some guy up on a mountain all by himself when nobody was around. Yeah, that kind of deal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or South Park's uh explanation of Mormonism, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Dum 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 dum. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more to me. To me, it, it owes a lot to the island of Doctor Moreau. What is the law? <laughs> exactly. You know, don't spill blood. Walk on two legs. It's it's that kind of code of Hammurabi thing that the apes have adopted, and it's fascinating. A little animal farm in there too. It sounds like. Yeah. Real tempted to throw a Stallone in there just for no reason at all. But- <laughs> Real tempted. I'm not going to do that, though. <laughs> but, yeah, that, that whole deal about Ape Law was kind of crazy pants to me, especially when you've seen Logic right in front of your face, and Dr. Zayas didn't really give a shit because he knew the way things were and the way they're they're going to be, essentially, because there's one one chatty human versus the rest of them. <laughs> well, and Zayas really thought he was working for the greater good. The greater good. But... <laughs> the greater good. <laughs> And that's what makes his character so fascinating. He's not really a sympathetic character, but you kind of understand where he's coming from because he needs to hold ape society together. And all of these sudden revelations, because, you know, Chuck Heston shows up, that's going to fuck up everything. And it'd be like if John Tyler were actually a time traveler and showed up during a press conference, you know, that Obama was having and said, hey, Here's what's going to happen in five years. Bye. So, yeah. yeah, I understand his character. At the same time, I I respect him, but I don't like him. Much like the most of the world, Turker respects Chuck Heston, but they don't like him. Exactly. <laughs> Even though he's dead, you know. And, uh, yeah. uh, you got to throw those politics aside sometimes. Just enjoy some good some good shtick. And you can, yeah, forget the, whole, forget the whole NRA thing. Even though there's a lot of rifles in Chuck Heston movies. Yes, indeed. <laughs> this is no exception. But the line, I'm not expecting a caption again. And of course, he's shirtless and he's holding this rifle, you know. And <laughs> basically, saying anybody that comes in my way is going to get shot in the face, you know. <laughs> is he allergic to shirts? Because he is shirtless so much in all three of these movies. Hey, guy was 45. Guy was 45 when he made this movie. If I looked that good in two years, I, I'd be wear, not wearing a shirt either. No shit. I'd be going to Kroger naked. Mm-hmm. I'd just be like, I'm going to buy this frozen pizza in the nude. <laughs> Fuck with me. I dare you. <laughs> Get your paws off my groceries. I, I love the fact that at the end, after Chuck Heston shaves his face, there's a very pro-beard statement that Cornelius says. That you looked more intelligent with the beard, so you know, yay me, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely 1968 right there, and especially, uh, well, it, that's the one where uh, he, yeah, because uh, Cornelius's nephew is there, and he's like, yeah, keep Lucius. that flag fl- flying, yeah, definitely yeah. talking to the youth of today, which I appreciate. Heston also, he actually says, "Don't trust anyone over 30. Yeah, so awesome. Yeah, the, 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 which is funny because you get a lot in these movies. You get a lot of hippie references to Charlton Heston, which is really strange. But we'll get to that more in the Omega Man. The, that nephew, definitely. that nephew was very progressive, though. <laughs> I'm surprised he him. is. I'm surprised he, he him. sounded like John Fiedler, but it wasn't John Fiedler. 
Really, he sounded like fucking Piglet. He's very damn the man. That that little that little ape fellow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Anything else you guys want to say about it, uh, Mike? About the film? If you haven't seen Planet of the Apes, just stop this show right now and go out and watch it because it, you owe it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those movies that the I can't remember what it's called. I, I guess it's the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Library. Oh my God, how drunk am I? The Library of Congress was like, yeah, this is one of those important films that we need to save. So yeah. it's on the if it's on the historic film register. Well, and then when the apes take over in a couple hundred years, they'll be able to look back at this and be like, oh, isn't this quaint? So we should go ahead and make a Planet of the Humans film right now. Just to combat all that ape propaganda that's coming in a couple of centuries. That was actually one of the proposed sequels back in the (laughs) 70s. No, don't tell me that. Nope, seriously. (laughs) Oh, man. If I have any major gripes about this film is the fact that Blu-ray kind of takes something away from it. Especially the the makeup effects on the apes. Because you can see how rubbery their faces are in HD pretty good. So they all talk like Jim Ross. It's still amazing makeup. I know it's still it's still good. I'm just saying you can still see, you can see the appliances more. Like how how not how how uh, how primitive. I'm gonna say primitive. But that's about the best word I could use for this. But how for what we have now, even in the 1980s, practical effects to back then, how it changed. But even you know, it's 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 a minor minor bitch. But HD ruins it. Not ruins it, but semi ruins it in a way. You know. The, the the locations look beautiful. Everything looks beautiful. The makeup still looks beautiful. I'm, I'm not I'm not cagging on the makeup, but there's certain things you can see that you didn't see on VHS. Is all I'm saying. That's why I still watch it on VHS. Though you have to watch it widescreen. Yes. That was yeah, one widescreen's essential. Yeah. Uh, but with nothing with that, no major bitches. Yeah, like I said, you guys said go uh go see Planet of the Apes if you haven't seen it before. If you have seen it, go watch it again. I've owned it on VHS. I've owned it on DVD. I've owned it on Blu-ray. I think I even have it digitally on my on my uh, Voodoo account. So I've owned I've owned a lot of formats. Not not Laserdisc though, obviously. You know, but uh, Slacker. Hey, that, that, was, that was too rich for my blood, man. We was Poe. <laughs> we was Poe back in them days. Oh boy. But yeah, we'll do ratings now. Uh, Mike, one through ten uh, on the film. I guess. Uh, what, with the neckwear, are we going to read the neckwear too, uh, X? <laughs> you can. It, uh, I didn't figure anybody else would care. That's just if, my deal. If you like to rate the network, you, ne- neckwear, you can as well there, uh, Mike. Oh, I would uh, definitely rate this a 10 for me. I mean, this is one movie that I go back to very often. And like I said, I've read about it, written about it, all this kind of stuff for the years. And it's just uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And as far as neck were, I'll just leave that to uh, to X here. Okay. Uh, X, what's your rating, sir? You know, I'm going to give it a nine as opposed to a ten, and it's only because of the um, heaviness of the dialogue. It's like, okay, dude, we get it, we understand what's going on. Give us some credit, and I don't think Sterling gave us a whole lot of credit with, with the screenplay to understand the whole societal implications of it. So nine is a film, um, a four for neckwear for light bondage. And this is a great movie that you need to watch. Uh, me myself, it's classic. I can't see myself giving it any less than a 10. Cause this is a film everybody should see. Like I said, my gripe about, you know, 
HD, which, you know, if you have a VHS that's widescreen, I'd say watch that first and then, then see how it looks in HD. Because, like I said, the HD looks beautiful, you know, except for those minor, 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 really minor bitches, you know. So, uh, neck worry, like I said, I'll leave that. Oh, four out of five, right, X? This, this, yeah, four out of five. This is probably the weakest of the neckwear in these three films we're going to talk about. So I'm, oh, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm going to give it a two, Joe. <laughs> <sighs> we're going to fight. Because <laughs> this neckwear in Soiled Green is amazingly gay, and I want to talk about that. <laughs> we're talking cruising gay, okay? Oh, <laughs> Oh. X is going to die tonight. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> so we got green next, so green, right? I'll, I'm Mega Man. I'm Mega Man. I'm going to that I'm out. Mega Man, thanks. All right. That's it for this one. I'll be right back with uh, the Omega Man after this. I'm living my life like a good homo sapien But all around me everybody's multiplying And they're walking around like flies, man So I'm no better than the animals sitting in their cages in the zoo, man Cause compared to the flowers and the birds and the trees I am an ape, man I think I'm so educated and I'm so civilized Cause I'm a straight vegetarian Population and inflation and starvation and the crazy politicians. I don't feel safe in this world no more. I don't wanna die in a nuclear war. I wanna sail away to a distant shore and make like an ape man. I'm an ape man, I'm an ape man, no, I'm an ape man. I'm a King Kong man, I'm a voodoo man. traffic rumble But give me half a chance and I'll be taken off my clothes and living in the jungle Cause the only time that I feel at ease is swinging up and down in a coconut tree Oh, what a life of luxury
There is no phone ringing, damn it! The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. What day is it anyway? Monday? The hell it is, it's Sunday. Sunday I always dress for dinner. Discovered check. How does that grab you, Caesar? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting. Because the last man on Earth is not alone. Mega Man from 1971. Uh, plot synopsis is this. Army doctor Robert Neville struggles to create a cure for the plague that wiped out most of the human race. Uh, it's kind of weak, but whatever. That is weak sauce. It is weak sauce, yeah. indeed. Uh, Charles Charlton Heston. And a lot of other actors I don't know about. Maybe you can help me with this X. Uh, the actors that are in this movie, that where they, where they, where they come from. Uh, maybe. I mean, Anthony Zerba was kind of the, um, he was kind of the Richard Lynch of the seventies. So when you saw somebody oh. with kind of a f- fucked up face, that's all I was thinking about the whole time. Why didn't that get Richard Lynch for this movie? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause Anthony Zerba got the part instead. Yeah. Cause Richard Lynch was like five. <laughs> um, yeah. Rosalind Cash. I don't know from anywhere else, even though she's a hot, sassy African-American woman. Um, I don't really know anybody else in this movie except Brian Toki, uh, who was on Space Academy back in the day. Nice. And that's really, those are really the only people in the movie I know are Heston and Brian Toki. Okay. Yeah. Anything out of you, uh, Mike? Actors, did you know this movie? Well, Paul, Paul Kozlo, um, he was in a bunch of stuff. He was in um, Joe Kidd. And Vanishing Point, uh, he's got a really great face as well. And then the guy who played um, uh, Richie, uh, Rosalind 
Cash's character's brother, Eric Landview, I believe it's pronounced. He was on St. Elsewhere for a while, and he was great on that. And I seem to remember, he was only in like two episodes, but I seem to remember him when he was on The White Shadow as well. So, great television actor, and then I think he went into directing, so... Uh, but yeah, and yeah, Zerby, he will always be known. I mean, yeah, he showed up in like the last two piece of shit Matrix films, but he will <laughs> always be Dr. Uh, Devereaux from Kiss Me the Planet, the, or Kiss Me the Planet, Kiss, Kiss versus the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> That's right. Which is a film we're going to be covering uh, sometime in the very near future. Oh, it's a classic. Talking to you, Scooby Doo. Yeah. <laughs> Coming soon, people, you know, to uh, uh, view into our world. They all lose the heads over you, Paul. <laughs> but uh, Omega Man uh, X, tell us your shtick on this film and what you like about it. This is the second uh, film telling of Richard Matheson's novel, I Am Legend. So <clears throat> um, the first one being The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. And then we got that horrible asylum version i am omega and then we got the worst version with the big budget uh with will smith the um i am legend film it's terrible um so to me this is the most well i don't know second i really like the last bit on earth um there are a few things about this whole story that i find interesting but in this movie particularly there are two movies that i think have the weirdest opening montages of all time. One of them is the ninth configuration, which opens up with a lot of long loving shots of the rainy Pacific Northwest. while the worst country song ever written plays back behind it. So uh, the Omega man opens with the fucking theme from a summer place, which is weird because it, 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 it evokes this really kind of idyllic, um, place where you can go and live and love and have sex on a golf course and everything is cool. And this version of L.A. is definitely not that. But it is the only Charlton Heston movie that I know of um, to have songs written about it. Uh, there's a police song called The Omega Man. And, of course, there's the white zombie song, Creature of the Wheel, which samples the film directly. Um, the thing that I love about this movie the most is that I don't understand... Um, the monsters. We are told that they were infected from missiles that were part of a germ warfare program. So they're full of uh, bacilli, bacterium bacilli. But what it does to their victims is really kind of weird and unclear. It turns your hair white, it turns your pupils inside out, makes you nocturnal. It gives you the urge to reject modern amenities and comforts and, in fact, puts you in the mindset of a witch hunter during the burning times. So these things kind of offset the motivation of revenge against Charlton Heston's character, who was the person who created the disease. So what the fuck are these guys? I mean, they aren't vampires and they're too lucid to be zombies. They're too slow to be ragers. They're too pale to be werewolves, unless you count the the Wallace werewolf from the Howling. So what are they besides infected? And the answer is they are a group of boogeymen. And that, to me, is just 
fascinating. They are the things that go bump in the night. They are the things that live in the dark. And in that aspect, this is probably one of the most terrifying group of villains I've ever seen in a film. And as far as Chuck goes, Chuck gets to be the ultimate 70s badass. He gets to stand inside of a burning car and shoot a machine gun. He gets to drive motorcycles and a blue 70, 71 Mustang. I mean, shit, that's, that's just the best thing ever. Well, there's, there's a scene at the very beginning, like you mentioned, where I think, you know, the carpenter should be playing or something while he's driving down the street. Yeah, and, uh, and he gets the he goes get the he crashes the the Mustang or whatever he was driving, and he goes to to, to go to the used car place get another car, and he's talking to the car, much like the the unfaithful wife in Creepshow too. <laughs> right off the showroom floor, Mrs. Lansing, shit like that. I was busted up laughing. It's all I can think about, you know, and and uh. Yeah, that, that, that opening scene was just strange because all of a sudden you see this cloaked person walking through the window and just Chuck just fires that submachine gun through the windows. and it's In fast amazing. motion. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, at that point, if, if you were looking for a father figure at that time and you saw that movie, Chuck would be your daddy. <laughs> no doubt about it. Now, there's a couple of things about this movie, they get weird. I think that once he meets up with the other survivors, it slows way down. It does. And it gets extremely draggy. However, and I don't really know if I should mention this, but the fact that Heston finds himself involved in an interracial romance. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty, in, that's pretty intense for 1971. Yes, We're not that far away from Kurt kissing Uhura on Star Trek. That was 68. When that happened. So in the middle of the early 70s, where we're still reeling from Martin Luther King being assassinated and Bobby Kennedy being assassinated and the Harlem riots and the Watts riots to have Chuck Heston um, go for Rosalind Cash, who had a fro bigger than fucking, you know, oh shit, I can't remember her name from Jet Magazine, Angela Baker, whatever her name was. Um, help me with that, but that was pretty incredible. Angela Davis. Angela Davis, thank you. Yeah, you don't you don't expect that from somebody who's going to end up being the spokesperson for the NRA. And she has no problem getting naked in this film either, which I really appreciate. I appreciated that too, and you're absolutely right. Um, so in that way, to me, the movie is 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 groundbreaking, but it also has that wonderful. Hey, it's the early '70s. Jaws hasn't come out yet. We don't know what a blockbuster is, so let's go ahead and make this the most depressing goddamn movie in the entire world. No, let's let's not forget the very next scene where she, the next morning, she's gonna go out and go pick up some stuff for the trip. She comes back and she's got fucking plague aids. Now, did she get it from fucking Chuck Heston? Or did she catch it from somebody? And that's a good question, because all she says is, can I borrow your credit cards, baby? And he's like, <laughs> and then she comes back, and she's a fucking monster. 
I love all the uh, the religious symbolism in this film. I mean, all the times that the like the kids think that he's Jesus and God yes. and all this stuff. And I mean, spoiler alert! But when he dies at the end and he's in that Jesus Christ pose, I'm like, oh wow, okay, yes. Yeah. Talk about not subtle. You know, if you had a problem with the subtlety of Planet of the Apes, there's no subtlety when it comes to this no. one. And you can also talk about how that symbolism of when he dies and who he dies in front of. Because he dies in front of the rest of the survivors. And the survivors are pretty much the performing art school that was in Billy Jack. And the guy who is in charge of them has a Billy Jack hat on. So this is pretty much the, the establishment is dead. It's been killed with a spear, just like they do to an apocalypse now. He's done. He's bled into his fountain. And now it's time for the counterculture to come forward and take over, which is also foreshadowed by the fact that Chuck Heston, the only movie theater in town, which fuck you, you're in Los Angeles. You can go anywhere. But the only theater in town that he goes to is the one that's showing Woodstock. And he watches Michael Wadley's documentary of Woodstock over and over again. He's got it memorized. And he suddenly realizes he misses that. He misses that free love. He misses that. This is where people actually loved each other and wanted to be involved with each other. And it wasn't part of the military industrial complex. So he realizes that he he's he's wasted his life, essentially. I mean, he, he knew how to use the projector and there might have been other films there to watch. If, if there was, why would he pick the long film to watch? You had to be inside before it got dark outside, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I get this. I get the I get the sensation that he usually got there a lot earlier. Right. Like maybe he made the one o'clock show nor- most days. It's like I'm going to sit through Patton and I don't give a fuck. Right, because Woodstock, Woodstock is four hours long. I Uncut, that's like literally three and a half, four hours long. Well, going back to that end scene, if I counted correctly, I believe that that Jeep that is carrying Rosalind Cash away, with her, there are 12 people inside. So I was just like, oh, the disciples, okay. So. Oh, look at you go, dude, yeah. <laughs> dude, I'm all about religious symbolism. That's fantastic. Yeah, oh, God, there's it's just rife with it, which I just really appreciate it. And for me, I mean, I really like Last Man on Earth as well, and it's a really terrific, faithful adaptation of uh, I Am Legend. But this just works for me. I really enjoy this, too. And this has that great 70s vibe and stuff. And Heston there, like, you know, what's his line about? Like, uh, you know, uh, pick up your skirts or something. You know, here we go. And just catch up your drawers. Thank you. Yeah. And then take it off on a fucking motorcycle. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is great. Oh, yeah. Truth be told, the only um, adaptation I've seen was the Will Smith one before this. Oh, See, I know it's painful. So going, yeah. so going into this movie, uh, what what the creatures or the people or whatever will go like? I was expecting like, like fucking Morlocks in the time machine or something, you know. Yeah. And uh, wow. I, they kind of looked a little bit like that. I can kind of uh, see that. But at no, least that's, they that's, were. That's what I was expecting. I didn't know what I was yeah. going to get though. At least they were real. At least they were computer yeah. generated shit. So been computer generated shuffling just shoulder oh, spasms. Yeah. And at least Charlton Heston was watching Woodstock and he didn't spend ten minutes mouthing lines from Shrek. No, 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 bust this though. 
one thing that it could have used from from that 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 shit version. Imagine Chuck Heston and a German Shepherd in this movie. Okay. <laughs> Dude, no. I, I would love kill. It. I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> Something about a man and a dog and a man and a monkey kind of makes me happy. You know. Did we did we just do the Road Warrior? I mean, I don't care. It worked in that movie too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I like that the the creatures are just so strange. I mean, the way that you talked about them being the boogeyman and then flipping it all on on its head, which you get a lot more in the Matheson book than than in here. But if you think about it, the whole idea of you know these creatures are scared for their lives because Heston is out hunting them down all the time you know, like put them as the humans and him as the you know for lack of a better term the vampire and and you know he's the the one that comes out when they're they're sleeping and attacks them and burns them and you know kills them and he's their boogeyman which i just really appreciate that you know it's all a matter of perspective and they're now trying to live their lives and be you know doing their thing and everything but he's the guy now who's terrorizing them he's their legend yes he is their legend and that's what makes the omega man work is that they understand that he is the one who brings fear. He is the one who brings meaning to their lives. And I, I, I kind of think he's that, a throwback know, too. Yeah. And I think once they actually finally destroy him, there's nothing left for them to do. Right. Cause he's, he's the voice, the voice of, uh, I don't even know the voice of what he does. But not have much to say in this movie, except for the fact that he's basically the cause for this whole thing. And, it's almost in a selfish way. He he took the cure and ran with it to see. Okay, let's see if this is gonna work. Which that that helicopter seemed me to laugh my ass off for some reason. You know, all of a sudden, this yeah, is not convenient. You know, and uh, I shouldn't laugh at that kind of stuff, but it, it made me good. The reason the helicopter scene is funny is because when the pilot comes down with the plague, um, you can see trees in the windshield of the helicopter just standing still. So you know it's on the ground. Right. And Heston's desperately pretending like he's flying, and he's not. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the people themselves, the creatures, or the, the infected, or whatever you would call them, their, their makeup was kind of tore up, but I didn't really have a problem with that because they almost had um. It's badass. What, what, what was the, the name of the, the character in Blood Feast? Where they just frosted everything? Are you talking about uh, Fuad Ramses? Yeah, Fuad Ramses, yeah. They just yeah. frosted his big-ass eyebrows and his hair to make him look old. These were just in, like, white face, and, you know, they, they frosted their hair. And I was fine with that. It, it was almost like the, the leprosy plague and the, the biblical plagues, you know. And, like, they had these, these spots on their faces, and, you know. If you want to get by cheap, that's real fine. And I'm, I don't got a problem with that, but it, it was effective. I'll give them that, you know. Ever tried an Egyptian feast? <laughs> Here's what I loved about Anthony Zerba's character is that he was a TV newscaster. Yeah. And towards the end of the plague, when people were dying and dying and dying, and it, just, it was just nothing else mattered, he turned into almost like a cable host. He turned into Bill O'Reilly. He was talking about, here's the judgment. You've been waiting for it. It's right here. It's here. It's now. Here we go. And he turned into this really weird kind of right-wing character, which back in the 70s, we only had three networks. 
you know, we had John Chancellor, we had David Brinkley, and we had Walter Cronkite, and they never went that far. So to have him just kind of go off onto this apocalyptic rampage, it's very Fox News. It's very prescient. And that's one of the things I love about this movie is because it's it's so right. Well, he, he had a great reason for doing all that because he was all diseased now and albino. And, you know, it's like, so you see what your man-made stuff does to you kids? You know, that kind of stuff. And it, it, it fucked up the whole world. I hope you're happy yeah. now. You know, and you, yeah. you people, sorry, are, William Frank, father, you, 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 you people of the wheel, you know, and I love, I love those speeches because they really worked. They really worked on a level, almost in like a Serling level. Like again, back to the Twilight Zone, there was a Twilight Zone episode where Dennis Hopper played a young neo-Nazi. It was being told by the ghost of Adolf Hitler. What the hell? Oh, yeah. Was riled up. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was so good. The, the monologues in that episode were really something. Just like his monologues really effective in this movie. And that's what really made the character really work for me. The fact that you had this face that you trusted uh, that, that told you the news on TV. You got this face now who's the the voice of the the, the oppressed, the voice of the sick. And this is the man you should hate. This is the, this is the man that wants to – has the ability to – even when the little boy comes to go, the brother goes to see him and say, look, we have the ability to make you well again. It's like, what the fuck? Maybe we don't, we don't want to be well, you know, and – they, yeah. they crucified him in the fact to say, you know, this is a statement saying, fuck you, we don't want you here, you know, and it's all political. And, you know, <laughs> And that's what makes this movie so great as far as the villains go, in my opinion. The boogeymen don't want to become human. It's right. just like the X-Men don't want the fucking cure in, in X-Men 2 and X-Men United. They're just like, no, we are who we are and we're going to stay this way and we don't care what the norm says. Going to uh, Genosha. Yeah, and these villains are like, no, we are the normal. This is who, this is how we live now. So sorry, uh, we're not taking your cure. Fuck your vaccine. That was one of the greatest ploys in X-Men comics. Here's a nice vacation spot for mutants. Mutants safe. Come to Genosha and have a good time. That doesn't sound suspicious at all, does it? You know, it's <laughs> Right? <laughs> oh, man. Flossed in paradise. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Oh, Chris Tucker, you're a magical man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do an impression, but I'm not going to do that right now. Do it! I'm not, no, I'm, I'm, I'm straight. I'm Say you're Ruby Red! Oh, I'm good. Are we green? <laughs> oh, I'm done. Oh, Mike, anything else you want to say about the Omega Man? We're going to do it now, sir. Now, again, movie holds up. You know, it, it, watching it again over the weekend, I was just like, yeah, this is a terrific film. You know, one of the things that I've really appreciated about you guys inviting me on here is just how great these movies are. So I was just like, yeah, I'll, <laughs> Omega Man? Yeah, of course I'll watch it. Ah, great. Uh, X, what's you, sir? Let's talk about the neckwear because I have to. Go for it. Um, there's really only one scene with neckwear and that's when Charlton Heston is making dinner on a Sunday and he realizes that he always dresses up for dinner on Sunday Fancy. <laughs> and he puts on this green crushed velour jacket oh, yeah, sexy. and a lacy Victorian collar. And he looks like Adam ant, uh, way before Adam ant ever started wearing that stuff. So just on that scene alone, the neck for a rating is a five. Mm, just wow. up there, yeah. That that cravat was banging, man. You know, it was amazing. <laughs> he was like a he was like founding father decked out. So 
and they and they had the pasty face of the creatures. See, so it kind of was reversed. Right. I see. Yeah. <laughs> but more subtext is probably not there. But you know, whatever. <laughs> it's okay. We're just making up as you go along. Let the audience figure it out. Give the audience the credit that they deserve. Okay. Uh. Yeah, we'll go into ratings now, I suppose. And like I said, this is the first time watch for me, I guess, and it was it was a good watch. I am gonna go back to it and watch it probably multiple times. Uh we'll get into ratings though, for sure. Uh Mike, what's your ratings on this film? I would say this is a solid nine. You know, it's it's not one I go back to as much as Planet of the Apes, but it's still it holds up. Great. Uh X. Um, I go back to this movie more than I go back to Planet of the Apes. So just on that alone, I have to give The Omega Man a nine and a half. And I realize it's not a perfect movie and the rating indicates that it's really close to perfect and it's not. But I think it breaks enough ground and opens up enough questions to where it merits that. So, yeah, I'll go nine and a half. Um, yeah, like I said, first time watch for me, uh, I would say... For for my taste, for me, me watching it once and that, I took it all in. But I need I need to watch it a couple a couple more times to take it all the way in. So, I'd say it's a solid eight for me, just for the fact that I haven't watched it more than once. And I need to fix that, I guess you know, and watch the Vincent Price one, and all that good stuff, and always stay away from the Will Smith one. <laughs> uh, yeah, and with that, yeah, because that's a piece of shit. I saw that on the opening weekend. <laughs> Me too. And I was so mad. But don't you so mad? Don't you love the ones that they they see the Batman Superman billboard in the in the movie? Look, they've predicted that. Shut the fuck up and go sit down. You know <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. But yeah, with that, we'll go right after these messages and such into the soil and green. Right for this. Such a feeling's coming over me There is wonder in most everything I see Not a cloud in the sky Got the sun in my eyes And I won't be surprised if it's a dream Everything I want the world to be Is now coming true especially for I can find Is the love that I've found Ever since you've been around Your love's put me at the top of the world When this day is through, I hope that I will find 
City in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police. What they need most is Soylent Green. The supply of Soylent Green has been exhausted. Return to your home. It is secret of Soylent Green. Detective Sergeant Thorne. He has a two-year backlog of unsolved murders. Now he's on a case that must be solved. Saul Roth, Thorne's private library. Hey, Saul! A living book in a world without books. Have some pencils. Courtesy of your next assignment. William R. Simonson. Simonson. He was the first to learn the secret of Soylent Green. They told me to, uh, to say that they were sorry but that you had become unreliable. <laughs> Saul Roth was the next to know. How do we come to this? And he chose to die, rather than reveal the secret of Soylent Green. What is the secret of Soylent Green? <clears throat> Why did you set up Simonson? I didn't. Cheryl. I see your hands. Officially, she's furniture. She comes with the apartment. She belongs to the tenant. How many times you've been in trouble with the police, Cheryl? Never. Can't hear you. Never. Captain Hatcher. First, he wanted this case solved. Simonson. What do you say? It was an assassination. Now, he just wants it closed. Who bought you? High and hot. And they want this case closed permanently. Their way. Now, you sign this. You sign it. Dorn refuses to close the Simonson case. Just do what you have to do. go with Simonson. He took me to church. Church? Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been six months since my last confession. Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Chuck Connors, Lee Taylor Young, Brock Peters, Paula Kelly, and Joseph Cotton. Fight for survival and try to solve the most bizarre riddle ever to face mankind. The search for the secret of Soylent Green. You 
will find out why Soylent Green means life. You will find out why Soylent Green means death. We've got to stop him! What is the secret of Soylent Green? Please! Soylent Green from 1973. Uh, it's a plot synopsis is this. With the world ravaged by the greenhouse effect and overpopulation... An NYPD detective investigates the murder of a CEO with ties to the world's main food supply. This stars, of course, the great Chuck Heston, the great Edward G. Robinson, the very sultry Lee Taylor Young. I love her in this movie. Oh, she's hot. <laughs> the night was sultry. She's good looking, man. Uh, character, I've, I haven't seen him. I probably have seen him in stuff, but I thought he was very cool looking with his sideburns. Brock Peters as, as Chief Hatcher. Shit, yeah. Uh, there's other folks that I, you guys would recognize. Uh, so give me a hand here, guys. What Chuck Connors, dude? Oh, yeah, Ch- Chuck Connors. Man. I forgot Chuck Connors. Yeah, I mentioned earlier too. Like they said, there, there, there's a there's a press pass. We're going to see this movie. It's good to see Chuck Haston bitch slap Chuck Connors, and you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Moses versus the Rifleman. That doesn't get any better. Uh, anybody else? Uh, you guys of note or? Well, well, Edward but, G. Robinson. I mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Okay. Yeah, which is amazing when you think that these those two guys were in the Ten Commandments together, and then yeah. Edward G. Robinson actually was part of the makeup test for the Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, he would have been Dr. Zayas, which was kind of cool. But he was allergic to the metal to the metal paint. Oh wait, no, that's that's Buddy Epstein. Wait, that was Wizard of Oz. Yeah, uh, it was great seeing Whit Bissell show up as Governor Santini. Though Whit Bissell does not look like his last name should be Santini, and the amazing <laughs> cameo by Dick Van Patten showing up for like five seconds at the end. Guard number one. Yeah, it's like all right, cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot of great faces in this. Can one. I go? I have eight kids at home. Oh man, <laughs> that Family Guy joke is bad. Did you guys see that before? Where Dick Van no. Patten just beat the fuck out of his kids and they go, Dad, oh, God, is yes. us, you know? Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, I'll take the lead on this one, I guess, because, you know, I'm a big softy, and this this film has a scene where if you haven't seen Soil and Green, I'm going to spoil it for you anyway. But it oh, involves Edward G. Robinson, and it's got one of those one of those moments that makes I was I was sitting in my chair just, you know, tears were coming out, but they were, they were apparent, man, you know? Or, you know, what's, what's, what's life worth? He, he figures it out at the end of this movie, you know, and it's a... Uh, no shame, dude. No shame in crying the soil and cream. No. None. Mm-mm. But uh, I like I liked the whole deal of this movie where he, he, uh, the very beginning of the film is basically showing you how the world turned to shit. And it sets it yeah. up real nice, you know? I love that montage. Uh, do not try to watch this one full frame either. Oh, my God. That Fuck opening no. montage is all about using that widescreen. Seeing that opening montage to me, it's like, Jesus, it's like a fucking Randy Newman video. Yeah. Except there's no words. Now, Days used to be better. Now things is voice. And it, that's the whole thing. It just, and the thing is, the music is by Fred Myrow, who co-wrote the score for Phantasm. Yeah, yeah I love that the whole montage thing, because it really didn't give them a chance to waste... 10 minutes of subtext explaining what happened because yeah. you're, you're looking right at it, you know, it's beautiful. And if you, if you don't get it, then I don't know, maybe something wrong with your brain or something, you know, it's just, it's really one of the best examples of non, um, 
spoken exposition that I've ever seen in a film. It was like the, the world's fucked up and guess what folks It's probably your fault for, yeah, for fucking to, having too many kids and way to go t- taking advantage of the resources in the world. And guess what? It's probably your fault. The world's fucked up. You didn't watch ZPG when it came out in 71. Guess ah. what? You don't know how many times I've referenced ZPG in the last month. (laughs) (laughs) We just did a whole post-apocalyptic series and it felt like every single movie I kept saying, well, ZPG, they did it better. And it's like, why wasn't I covering ZPG? I definitely have to. Oh my God. Yeah. This film, though, of course, stars a great Chuck Connors as this uh, detective of sorts, but more like, prowler and stealing shit out of people's homes you know he's a scavenger with a badge he's a scavenger with a badge it's like this is the filthiest of dirty cops like he's he's on the case but he wants to see what he's got going on in your fridge he's kind of like that 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 friend that your mother hated you know hanging out in high school you know he's tony he's tony LaBianco in the seven ups it's like what's your mom got the fridge there man Ooh, look pot roast i'm gonna eat that did (laughs) did your mom make kool-aid i fucking love kool-aid she put enough sugar in it fuck it i'll do it he really reminded me of like i don't know like uh sam spade or or um or Philip Marlowe, I guess more Sam Spade than Philip Marlowe, but because He's, he just uh, was all about taking advantage of the situation, and it kind of is that character trait that would lead to characters like a Yojimbo or something, where it's like going to either side and just trying to get everybody to pay him. And in this one, he's just going to anybody and everybody and just taking advantage of every situation that you possibly can. But you can't blame him for any of it. It's just like, hey, you know, these people have, you know, the the one percenters, they've got all this great stuff. And so he's just going to climb up that ivory tower and take whatever he can from these people, even their fresh beef, which has to be, I don't know how many you know, dollars or D's oh, or whatever crazy. they were calling it. It's, it's got to be crazy. I'd go, I'd go more Mike Hammer. He is a Mike yeah, Hammer. Okay, character. yeah, yeah. I think I'll, I'll admit that. Yeah, that works. Yeah, things are so distraught in this world. And, and, I, and I, I love Edward G. Robinson. He's probably like the constant in this film for me because he's the one that guy that just gets it. And he's just, he's just tired of this world, especially the part where he brings home he brings home the beef that he stole from this apartment and he brings home the vegetables and he just starts going to tears saying, you know, this is what we've come to, you know, and it's so beautiful, dude. <laughs> oh man, there's there's Edward Robinson for from beyond the grave. Uh, I, I commend you for making a fat guy cry, okay? Because uh, it's 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 uh, <laughs> God, that's two fa- that's two fat guys, brother. Because <laughs> I fucking lost it at this movie today. Oh my God. Yeah, that, that that deal with him. I mean, he seems like he's got a good good heart. Uh, our, our detective, like I say, he just steals shit. And it drives me crazy. You see the price of his stuff, especially the part where um, Chuck Connors, I guess. And that's what I love about this film. Not love about this film, but, you know, the fact that women are furniture in this film. And called furniture. <laughs> called furniture. Yeah. And, you know, they just live in these apartments ready for the next tenant to fuck them. Well, Chuck Connors has himself a sultry black chick, and she's eating these strawberries. And you find out how much strawberries cost, and like, she's just living in decadence. Like the 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 tenant dies, so he just ganks his furniture. He's like, oh, so you got some new furniture, huh? You know, hundred and fifty d's a jar for strawberries. Crazy. 
in the world almost like almost like it is today. You know, like what's it worth the in food stamps? You know, you know, two hundred D or two hundred fifteen food coupons. You know, stuff like that. And uh, it's the world is so fucked up, and they 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 they, they damned them all to hell. You know, they did it to themselves. And dude. I never read the book, but I yeah. won't read the book, though. It's, it's one of those things. See, and as soon as the movie starts, even in the montage, this feels like a Henry Harrison story. I mean, just immediately there's that grime, and it has kind of a patina to it, kind of a burnished green, where you're just like, oh, yeah, this is a stainless steel rat story, even though it's not in the novel. But you're just like, if you know anything about sci-fi fiction, you're like, this is a Henry Harrison story and it's Richard Fleischer just pulls it off immaculately. It's so good. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's a great film and uh, it, it's hard for me to talk about really actually in a lot of sense. I know we're supposed to be doing a review and starting to get into the, the meat and potatoes of the film, but you know, this film hits me on so many levels, like I say, because it's, it's so real and you know, that it could possibly and probably will happen in, in this country, you know? Once you start yeah, running out of shit, we'll make shit turn another shit, you know? Soylent oh. yellow made from pure soybeans. What's the red and made out people, of, you know? Yeah, and have the people lying to the fucking general public about where this shit comes from? Yeah. Much like now, you know? Much GMOs, like now. What? GMO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, it's kind of scary in a lot of ways, and uh, but it just works, man. The the whole movie works. It, I, when I was younger, it's funny because there were times in this movie, I don't know if it was the appearance of uh, um, you know, some of the characters or what it was, but I was reminded a lot. I guess maybe it was because of the furniture. I was reminded of Rollerball a lot and that whole idea of in this world, in Soylent Green world, the women come with the apartment basically. And in rollerball world, the women are just kind of rotated out of these players lives and everything. And rollerball always felt very slow to me. And I think that's because when I saw it, I was a lot younger. Soylent green used to feel slow to me, but that I watched it over the weekend and I actually, after it was done, I watched it a second time, which I usually don't do that. And it, moves a lot faster now that I'm a, a, an older person and can appreciate what's happening with this, especially all of the pieces falling into place and Heston trying to play these different pieces against each other. And I guess also the whole idea of the machinations between the government, the police. I mean, Brock Peters just, you know, he kowtows to the authorities, no questions asked once it, you know, comes to that. So I, I've definitely found that this movie has a lot more going for it now than when I saw it as a younger man. And it, it, in that way I can see it holding up pretty darn well from 1973 all the way up to 2015. Well, they really brought it home when, uh, almost at the very beginning of the movie, almost where, where Chuck is talking to Saul, he's talking to him about basically you're getting, you're getting too old. It's like, you know, we better do our jobs. You know how many folks are out of work in the city, you know? We keep yeah. your place like that. And then the, the chief was talking about, you know, maybe Saul's getting too old. Maybe it's time to replace him. The fact that, you know, we could replace people and things. And, you know, it goes back to the Twilight Zone, the obsolete men, you know, people who are useless in society. You know, what's what's their use for them? Absolutely nothing. And you get it, you get it in this movie, you know, once you're useless to society, there's that scene that, or again, guy cry time 
where he goes to visit the priest, and the priest is just exhausted from listening to people have to oh. say all day long. Oh, God. That scene is amazing. And, you know, he picks up the little girl who was tethered to its mother, and the mother's dead, and the little girl's, you know, it's, it's oh, my God. There's so many emotions coming right now, man. Just flood, flood back in, you know. And that's You're one of the guys. Cry all over again, Gary. <laughs> that priest is played by Lincoln Kilpatrick, and he was one of the the bad guys from the Omega Man. So you got another Heston connection. So that's kind of cool that he's like working with some of the same guys, film after film. He's just so, and in that scene, that priest is just so devastated. Numbed. He's yeah. just devast- should I make some space? I make space for people, and it's terrifying. He's like the priest in Dawn of the Dead, the original that comes through in the basement. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it's the, like this, this we're not going to stop you. Yeah, just we're not going to stop you. We're sorry this shit happened. Just please don't hurt anybody. God, it's <sighs> like whatever it is, good news. You know, whatever is good. You know, good, bad, ugly. You know. I could have killed my wife and told you about it. He's been listening to some shit all day and putting up with some shit all day. I mean, the first first frame you see him in is he's he's fixing the bunk so somebody else could lay on it. He's just been so busy all day that once he gets to the altar, he just sits down like I got I got to take a moment for myself here, you know. And he's just compartmentalized and he's broken, and that is probably the greatest five minute long performance in a movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He's just, it just, it kills. It fucking kills. Yeah, that's what this film's filled with. It's filled with kill, kill, kill Gary scenes, you know, kill a lot of folks scenes, but you know, Oh dude, kill X scenes. Yeah. I was amazed at how small of a role Joseph Cotton has in this film, but he really brings it home. Of course, as you know, this guy who, Helped kind of orchestrate what Soylent Green has become. He's the guy who knows everything. And again, you know, kind of takes it back to classic film noir. I kept thinking of films noir as I'm watching this. This He kind of reminded me with his death of like the suicide of the cop at the beginning of The Big Heat, where it's like his death is what sets everything in motion and also allows for this kind of mystery to be unraveled. And Charlton Heston as Detective Thorne, I mean, just he solves the mystery and it really does become something of meaning to him. But first and foremost, he's just there to try to you know, milk it off of the system and, and, you know, take these people for everything they have. It's nice that he begins as one character and then really kind of finds his center as he's going through it and realizes, you know, no, it's really important for me to solve this mystery. And he kind of almost does some of it by accident. But then once he realizes that it is this, you know, conspiracy and he doesn't know that it goes all the way to the top until far too late, unfortunately, but he's driven by that time. By the time you get to the end, he's the one he's like, you know, I've got to tell the truth. Oh, it, the, the, the scene where, um, that <laughs> mentioned earlier about him bitch slapping Chuck Connors is pretty amazing too. <sighs> Cause when you, you find out that Chuck Connors is basically dirty, he's a company man who I, I, I didn't ever say in the movie, if he, if he overheard Simonson, the guy that that's murdered is basically assassinated in the beginning of the movie. If he was going to tell about Southern green or what was going on, but you know, him at that scene where he's tailing them and Chuck just, I mean, Thorne just knows that he's tailing them. And he's, he's like the most resourceful in this movie. that he is in the three movies we're talking about. If you think about it, cause he just seems like he's got it all together. 
and then he's he's figuring it out piece by piece, like you said. But that that scene, anything with Chuck Connors, it's, it's like like your like your classic Frankenstein assassin, like your Martin Landau, North by Northwest, you know that kind of deal. Like the faceless guy who, like you mentioned, the noir stuff is very very espionage. Him him figuring it out, and then somebody else is following by him, and somebody else is following by him. And this cheap is telling him to drop the case because guess what? Guess who's paying us, motherfucker? You're going to drop this case, you know, and you want to lose your job too, this, that, and the other. And then that, that was, uh, it, it's all, it's all really connected, you know, the, the haves and the have nots kind of deal where the haves are very few and the have nots are abundantly clear. See, and here's what's interesting to me is when Mike was talking about who the Joseph Cotton character Simonson reminded him of, the person that he reminded me of was the character, the football player in The Last Boy Scout, who suddenly comes up field shooting a gun at the yeah. guy coming at Oh, him. fuck it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of a weird correlation to make, but that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, oh, shit, here we go. Here we go. And that sets Bruce Willis on his path, just like it sets uh, Thorn on his path in this movie. And that's an incredible, incredible character um, attribute to have. Yeah, we're basically going to spoil this whole film because this film was filmed. This film was filled with, with scenes that, you know, are so powerful. It's 32 years old, it's, Gary. It's hard not if we to can't spoil fucking it. spoil it now. If you haven't heard the phrase soil and green is people in something, you know, I think even even in the Simpsons, I think you go back to the Simpsons, I think there's like I think like when they go to the future or something and Bart's like 30 or something. It's like yeah. soil and green now with extra people or something it says on the box, you know, and then <laughs> matter. I I always misremember how this movie ends. I remember it as being like this huge reveal, just like him running through the streets and screaming his head off and trying to lift the world. And then I watch it again. And I'm just like, <laughs> mm, no, not quite. You're getting it mixed up with body snatchers, bro. Yeah, I guess so. See, with, with, the, with the scene you get, you know, you're next. Yeah. The scene. They're that, already here. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> The, the scene at the, the not at the end, but once Edward G. Robinson Saul figures out that the plankton's all dried up, uh, and you know he yeah. figures out what's oh. really going on. The fact that he has a council of bookkeepers that know all this—I guess they just kept their mouths shut this whole time. In fact, these two, these two have been pushed out the pasture, like captured by the man, the corporation. By now, kind of blew my mind that you have like this council of eight people who. Who already knew this? Like now, it's somebody else's turn to know it. You know, and it's right. They're like the Supreme Court. It's like Judge Dredd. <laughs> Go back, Judge Dredd against each other. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, it's, it's it's time for me to talk because you know, as on this show, I'm known as Professor X, so I have theories, and I think that this movie is about three separate things besides the obvious. The first thing is that this movie is about extremes. It's about the severe polarities in society. The rich are obscenely rich. The poor are like fucking black plague poor, living on the streets, sleeping in stairwells. And Heston's character, who gets to dip his toes in the wealth while still living in poverty, he is an asshole. But you understand 
why he is. So even in a world that is on the brink of disaster, and I would even say gone over that brink, still, even in that situation, the rich are different. This is a film that needs an Occupy movement. Now, second, Soylent Green is food porn. That sequence where Heston and Edward G. Robinson are enjoying the food that Heston has stolen, and there are no words, just facial expressions. Now, Edward G. Robinson remembers real food from when he was a kid, and Charlton Heston's never had it. And they don't talk, and it literally is just iceberg lettuce, uh, an apple, and some boiled beef. And if this movie doesn't make you fucking appreciate food, the food that you eat every goddamn day, then there is something wrong with you. And that brings me to the third point. This is a movie about gratefulness and not taking things for granted. In this movie and in present times, we have fucked up the planet. We fucked up the oceans, our food sources. And in the end... We have fucked up each other, and we should be more mindful of our surroundings, all of the all of the nouns that fill up our everyday lives, the people, the places, the things that are important. And surely, Soylent Green's a cautionary tale, but even more important than that, it's a warning that still rings true even 32 years later. This is my favorite movie out of the three that we've talked about, and I think school children should be forced to watch this flick. That's all well and good, but how's the neckwear? The neckwear is weak sauce. (laughs) The neckwear is just a thin piece of light green fabric, no pattern, no flair. It's almost effeminate. So on the scale of of, of Heston's neckwear alone, this solid green gets a two. See, I think he fit in real, real well. I mentioned cruising, where especially the scene cruising where Powers Booth is talking about the colors of the of the, oh, the, the, the hankies, the fact that he's wearing it around his neck, which means tells me he's ready to rock and roll. So you know, <laughs> it's almost perverted in a way. Like, don't I, don't yeah, I, thankfully, there's no Charlton Heston fisting scene. It's like, don't I look dandy in my bandana? You know, <laughs> can't stop the music, bro. Well, you can't stop it ever, man. Come on now. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the small point though. That, that's uh, uh, I guess a, a light, a lighthearted, funny point. In this movie, because probably what we're going to talk about next is uh, going to probably because you know, oh my god, yeah. There, there's the part where, where Chuck Heston's putting it all together, and then Saul figures everything out with his his, his council of old folks, and he decides he's going to go to the Soylent Corporation, which seems like a really, really looks really shit in the outside, but looks like heaven on the inside. Because it's air conditioned, everybody's wearing clean clothes, and yeah, there's nice music playing, and all these seem very friendly. And they ask you all these questions: What's your favorite color? What's your favorite music? But you're basically going there to die. So Saul, this figure, he's he no no use to society, so he's gonna he go kill kill himself on his own terms. And I, uh, yeah, I, I can't it's, I can't talk about it. <laughs> Just go go for it, man. It's, it's it's like the suicide booths in Escape from New York. You know, since you realize that there's nothing else to live for and you've done everything you can do and you're fucking done, just go ahead and get it over with before you end up in this prison. And in this movie, New York City, 
in the year 2022 with 40 million people in it, that's a fucking prison. And the whole scene where he's in the suicide bin and he gets to see, oh, Jesus, I can't talk about it either. The scene, he gets to see the earth that he remembers as a child. It's, it is literally the worst thing since Come Home Snoopy. I can't even fucking deal with it. I just can't. It's just, it's beautiful and it's horrible at the same time. And yet Saul is the one who holds the key to the entire mystery. So, And great music choice, too, having the classical score over that. And just that, just like, how beautiful like the world could be. Yeah. Like classical. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's what you it's what you hope you see when you die when you're going through the fucking tunnel up to the light, like everybody says. That's the kind of shit you hope you see. It's fucking oceans and elk and just nature in general and everything that you loved when you were on Earth. And oh god, that scene is just it's wor- it's worse than the entire Iron Giant movie. Oh. It just tears me apart. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, Mike, what about you, sir? It's wonderful, wonderful film. I mean, there's really, you know, like I said, I've grown to appreciate it more now than I did when I was younger. And really, with the way that the world is, I, I agree with X that uh, more people need to see it. I mean, this is... Uh, it's a very great cautionary tale of stuff that's already happening in the world. Mm. Kardashians, the weather, ozone layer, something's going to kill you, okay? You know, it might be the scoops, that's all I'm saying. I talk about the scoops, because I think amongst all the stuff that's in this movie, the scene with the scoops is probably the most least, the least important thing about this movie. You know, all that is what you see on the, the DVD box cover is them throwing people into dump trucks, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, and it's interesting that the person who was hired to kill Detective Thorne, who is the same guy that killed uh, Simonson in the beginning, he gets squashed by the scoop. You know, the fucking sc- scoop. I guess there's a, not another word for it. It's, it's generally a but, big old bulldozer with a, attached to a garbage truck, you know. Right. Yeah, and it comes down and it just flattens him, and it's so impersonal. It's so... It's like he's he's nothing. People are nothing in comparison to these great corporations that control everything. And it's terrifying. It's one of the it is probably the best visual representation of that that I've seen since fucking, you know, the battleship Potemkin. It's just right there. You can't ignore it or deny it. Well, and speaking of visual, I love the scenes that are outside where everything is just so hazy and hard to see. It's just like, oh, that's a really nice effect that they have going on there to just represent how shitty the air quality is. Yeah. Yeah, this is the smoggiest film ever made. Yeah. It's like nothing's ever cleaned. If you think about, you know, even even them getting food out in the streets, you know, and get your soil get your soil and bread here, your your whatever get your, 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 your tabs of whatever you, you got to eat and nothing can be clean. And then the air, the quality, especially you see the folks with the, with the face masks on and stuff like, you know, this is the world they're living in. 
But then there's that scene where Charlton Heston and Lee Taylor Young are together in that apartment, and she tells him that they have hot water, and he just about yeah. breaks down and cries because oh, yeah. he hasn't oh, yeah. had hot water for so long. And he's and she's like, you can take a shower and let the water run as long as you want. And he, he can't take it. It's more than he can actually absorb. It, and that's just an amazing scene. And I love that he takes the time to, to call her first before he calls his police captain. Basically, yeah. tell her, you know, just, just be furniture, which is a really disrespectful thing to say to somebody like that. But basically saying, stay there, you'll have security for the rest of your life. Even though you have this character who's, I, I don't want to say my favorite character in the film, but the fact that you have a landlord slash pimp who controls all this furniture, Charles. Yeah. But they're having Charles. But they're having their. If you listen, <laughs> just Charles. Just Charles. It's legal. Yeah. All the girls were hanging out in Simonson's apartment, just having a good time. He just starts beating the fuck out of him. You didn't see it coming. He just he's a real regal guy. This real regal fellow just starts ham fisting these bitches in this apartment building. Yeah, you don't want to cross Charles. And you hear that if you listen to the music, it's, it sounds, and I think it is like a real light version of the Shaft theme. You know? Yeah. It, it's something just like yeah. it. You know? It's like when William Regal goes nuts and fucking destroys somebody on an old fucking WWF show. You don't expect it because he's such a dandy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man, and that that Robin suit man, just you know, just. Smacking bitches, you know. It's a really, it's a real small part about this movie, but the fact that it came out of him, and uh, oh, but yeah, Edward G. Robinson, I hate you from beyond the grave for making me feel so sad about a movie. But you know, right? You, you did it, man. <laughs> you did it, man. <laughs> you were you, you were worse than Brian's song. Okay, it's all I'm saying. Jesus. <laughs> oh, but with that, uh, any other final things you want to say about it? X, go for it, brother. No, I mean, I just, out of all the movies that we're talking about tonight, if you're looking for a strong performance from Chuck, uh, Soylent Green is it. I mean, Planet of the Apes is a lot of speechifying, and the Omega Man is, as far as he goes, it's okay. That's cool Chuck. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool Chuck. That's Rambo Chuck, and he's good for like the first 20 minutes, and then the rest of it's just like, uh, that's Chuck Heston. Okay, whatever. But Soylent Green is the one where he really shines. He really comes across. He, you know, he becomes humanized far too late. But the fact that he becomes humanized at all is amazing in that film. And he pulls it off so good. So good. Oh, boy. A bike. Yeah, I, I got nothing to add. I mean, X has said it. it. It's just terrific. And, you know, Heston's no spring chicken in this one. The guy's rocking 50 at this point, I think, and looking damn good. And, you know, he just uh, he pulls off the performance. I think everybody really gives some stellar performances in here. And you can watch it just for the acting. And like we talked about the scene with the priest, just that's worth the price of admission alone. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's been a film for me, but it, it was like more of an experience. Like, like you said, Mike, watching as an adult and watching when you're like 14 is two different experiences. Cause especially, oh yeah, I'm not going to say love mother earth. She'll betray or she'll betray you. I'll sound like a real fucking dirty hippie. That's what this film's all about. You know, taking advantage of what you got. And now look, there's 22 million of you. You guys ain't got shit. Yeah. You ain't got food to eat, I, you know? 
I love it, man. You know, these three films, Heston gets fucked over every single time. You know, he dies in two of them and, you know, gets his heart basically cut out of him in the other one. I mean, it, it's great that within a, what, six, five-year period, he was in these three films, which I think are, you know, kind of bastions of science fiction, and he is not the, you know, he's the hero of the film, but he certainly isn't triumphant in any of them. And that's that kind of, you know, 70s sci-fi stuff that I absolutely love that we've got these endings on all these movies, man. And it is great. Because up until 1975, there were no happy endings in 70s movies up until fucking Jaws when the first that was the first blockbuster. Up until then, there weren't any happy endings in the 70s. And you, when you watch Heston in these three movies, and we're on the decline of his career at this point, you know? I mean, there's, like I said earlier, there's no, there's no Ben-Hur. You're, you're too old to play Moses, and you're too young to be Grandpa, so what are you going to do? You're going to do sci-fi, and you're going to do sci-fi that, at that time, was... You know, programming for drive-in flicks. This is the second feature, but they've ended up being so prescient and such classics. And I think it's really due to his presence, his amazing shirtless yet still neck-adorned presence that makes these movies as relevant as they are today. Yeah, I'm looking through his filmography post, um, post Soylent Green, and yeah, he's got a couple things here and there. But Earthquake these, was good. I love Earthquake. Yeah. Well, in Airport '75, but it's like yeah. nothing that is just as ground shaking as some of these films. And definitely, yeah, to your point, he's already done Ben Hur. He's already done the Ten Commandments. He's done those roles where you just associate with him so much, and. You know, not to say that these films past Soil in the Green are bad by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not the kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I immediately think like it, it t- takes me a second to think of Earthquake, or to think of a solar crisis, to remember that he narrated, you know, Armageddon, some of these things. It's like, oh, OK. Tombstone. Yeah, Tombstone. Right. Well, for me, it's all about. Wayne's World 2 when he shows up in that but Jesus. you know it's 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 not like you know it, it, and then his horrible turn in the remake of Planet of the yes. Apes but let's not even talk about that Stage father <laughs> but see but from see, my cold dead hands yeah and see and here's the thing about Chuck Heston is because he went from DeMille blockbusters to these sci-fi flicks that in the early 70s, sci-fi was taken a lot more seriously than it is now. You know, it's like you couldn't take the Soylent Green and give it over to the Wachowskis because Larry and Lana would fuck it up. They'd make it eight hours long and, you know, have endless scenes of people jumping through tunnels, and that would be it. So from the blockbusters... Well, we've already seen what... Uh... The Omega Man in the, in our time, and what Planet of the Apes in our time, right? Like, uh, I will say for those those prequels for Planet of the Apes, all is forgiven for 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 Burton's, in my opinion, because I really dig those films. So you know, 
But to go from but to go from blockbuster to sci-fi to movies with an all-star cast, and you know what I was saying, the Irwin Allen shit mm-hmm. from the late 70s. It's amazing uh-huh. that he still had enough of a career to move to TV, which he did on the Dynasty spinoff, The Colbys. He was on that for four years. That's incredible because he should have he should have been buried. He should have been buried after a fucking earthquake. What? Let's put Lauren Green in a swing. What? No, you're done. But you, know, you, mean, you, you got that household name, you know, though. You know, and it's exactly it you got that. Chicks remember the chest. It's like Batman Forever. Chicks take the car. Chicks remember Charlton Heston's chest. And it's amazing. Shit, Chicks. Chicks. Yeah, right. I mean, even I'll admit that. Goddamn, Charlton Heston. Fuck. He's a goddamn macho man. <laughs> it's all about buying that pizza naked, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, I just, this, this film for me, is just, it holds special place in my heart. And, you know... My soul, like, it makes me bare my soul every time I watch it because it's like, you know what, as a society, we're, we're really a, not, as a collective, I'm not saying you guys are disgusting, we're really disgusting people who really don't give a shit about a lot of things in this world. And Oh, I'll own that one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, 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 we eat too much, we, we swear too much, you know, we, we, we do a lot of things too much. We, we, we drive Escalades, we get uh, 11 miles to the gallon. You know, and it, it's no, it's it's not. It's time to stop at some point, and you know. Remember. It's like Boris. He said, "Drink too much, and I smoke too much, and there's nowhere to go but down." <laughs> like I said, I'm gonna sound real preachy. You know, that I'm not meaning to, but you know, this movie does it to me. It it makes you want to be preachy and appreciate the things you have. Yeah, it kills me. And uh, I guess we'll go right into ratings now. Um, X, what's your rating for this one? If we're going on a rating of 1 to 10, Soylent Green is a 12. Okay. It is the best out of these three movies, and I think it's probably the best Charlton Heston movie ever. My wife will disagree because she loves the Ten Commandments, but Soylent Green, holy shit. So many levels, so deep, and so well done. Uh, uh, Mike, what's, what's your ratings on the film? I give it a 9. I also... I. Actually, I take it back. I'll give it a 10. I think this one is holds even more for me now. And like I said, I don't watch movies twice in a row like this, and it really worked. Um, Yeah, for me, I, I, I can't go lower than a 10. You know, for all the reasons I mentioned during this review, you know, because there's, there's not much stuff in, in, in celluloid that could make me reach deep emotions like this film does, and... It did its job, and that's all you could ask for from a film like this. So yeah, ten out of ten for me as well. You know, as a dude with kids, and and when I say kids, I mean kids who are almost grown, like you know, nineteen, twenty, seventeen. I really want to make them watch this movie and have them realize that it's time to be careful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But uh, with uh, all those raw emotions and political craziness. We'll come back and we'll close out the show. 
Hi, I'm Mike White. And I'm Rob St. Mary. And we're the hosts of the Projection Booth Podcast. If you haven't heard of the Projection Booth, that's okay. But we think it's time that you have. We've been doing this for over three years now. And we think we're doing a pretty good show. Every week we look at a different film and put it in context. We try to bring you interviews with the people behind the films. Or experts on a subject matter covered in the film. We don't specialize in any one particular genre or type of film. We try to examine every aspect of cinema. From every corner of the globe. Even at three years, we barely just scratched the surface. But we're ready. We're ready for you to listen to us. That's right. Now's the time to give us a shot. Download us through our free smartphone app. Or through Stitcher, iTunes, Geek Juice Radio, Jackalow. Or our website. Projection-booth.com. We'll keep making great shows. Now it's your turn to listen to them. My name is X. And I'm Cootie. Please consider us your high priest. And priestess. Of satanic cinema. Join us on our podcast, Kiss the Goat, which will drag your soul through some of the finest and worst devil movies of the last 50 years. Devils and demons, exorcisms and possessions, cults and rituals, dogs and cats living together. Is that a devil movie? Maybe. Sort of. I don't know, babe. We'll talk about it later. Join us on the Horrorphilia Podcast Network every other week as we don our hoods and cloaks and kiss, kiss the, the goats. Goat. It's a hell of a good time. I knew you were going to say that. Of course you did. It's in the script. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic, old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms. To see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, signing off. <gasps> My films! Oh, gimme, gimme, gimme! Ah, Chinema. Porkies? Meatballs too? Enjoy your crap fest. <laughs> oh, go read the bell jar, you poser! Klaus? Prepare to feast your eyes on the majestic grandeur of the silver screen. Yeah, to, with that, I'd like to thank, uh, thank you, Mike, for coming on the show. You really brought something to the table, sir. You're uh, welcome anytime you want to come back, really. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And, and like I said, you couldn't have picked three better films to talk about. These were just amazing. So uh, it was a truly a pleasure to rewatch these, and it was great talking about them with folks that appreciate them. Uh, just uh, in case folks don't know where to find your stuff, go ahead and uh, push whatever you got coming up, sir. Yeah, go ahead over to projection-booth.com, and we've got, oh, God, a whole bunch of stuff. Coming up in uh, May, we're doing a whole month of films that you really can't see uh, very 
easily. We're talking about uh, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, which still isn't released, but hopefully one of these days will. Win Chamberlain's Brand X. We're talking about Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever. And we're talking about George Lucas's Star Wars. So all films that you cannot see the original versions of very easily. Sweet. Sweet. Uh, X, tell us you coming up, sir. You can find me on my main podcast, which is Kiss the Goat, which I host with my beautiful wife, Cootie. Um, and that is all about devil movies. So on our next episode, we'll be covering the 1995 travesty Constantine oh with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> you can also listen to me on the 6.5 which is the six and a half feet under podcast on horophilia. I am also, of course, the co-host here on cinema beef. And you can also listen to me on the two drink minimum commentaries podcast and the not so evil episode sidecast with Mike Merriman, Doug Tilly and Iris Saravia. Uh, please find my writing about music on popshifter.com. And you can find my fiction on Amazon.com, and you can learn about all of this on JeffreyXMartin.com, my own personal website, S-J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. There you go. And that's it. That's a lot, man. <laughs> I know that's a lot. That's okay. It's, it's hard for me to remember every single fucking thing that I do. Uh, you can find me always here on the Sydney Podcast. Uh, you can find me on Two Drink Venom Commentaries, uh, running that show, Gill Editing. It's a beautiful, beautiful collaboration with uh, lots of folks and talking shit about dur- during the movie like, while you guys are watching it. And, and you guys keep downloading, so you know that I, I appreciate you guys for that, for putting us up there on the Legion podcast ratings. We don't need another hero, dude. <laughs> don't bring it up, man. Don't bring up the children again, man. <laughs> But um, you can find me also on Sloppy Seconds, the movie sequel podcast, where I'm sure I'll hit some emotions when we do Rocky Balboa when that happens, you know, all over again with the crying like a fucking old man, see? But, uh, <laughs> uh yeah, myself and Eric Bergstrom of the 100 Years of Horror podcast do that show. He's also on a, a shit podcast called Giallo Chow Chow. You guys should check out it because I like the Giallo stuff. Uh, yeah, Twitter, at GW. Come join our Facebook group. If you rate and review any show that I've produced on iTunes, being uh, could be this show, could be Two Drink Venom Commentaries, could be Sloppy Seconds, could be The Bird and the Beard, any of those four shows, you have any uh, any uh, four chances to win a few autographs from me and a couple of Blu-rays and a uh, very special, I think it's the coolest prize of the bunch, uh, Punisher, a Walgreens exclusive pop vinyl. It's a bobblehead. He's wearing his fancy white booties, so you guys might enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, with that, thank you, Mike, again for coming on and listening to the projection booth. Uh, I don't know how many times I push your show on my show, Mike. It's just, uh, there's certain shows that you do that I, uh, <laughs> I, they're, 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 they, they kill time at work and that's, that's an important thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Killing time is definitely very important. Thank you again, guys, for having me on. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah. With that, always here at the Sin Beef Podcast. If you got beef, we've got the grinder. See you soon.
See my bacon's on me. 